This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And we're back after a long weekend. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here today with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and subbing in for Lisa Garvin, we have Courtney Astafi, who will also be on tomorrow. Hope you all had a great weekend. It was terrific weather. Now let's talk about news. It's a first world problem, but it is the talker of the weekend for us. So we begin with it. Why are people so torqued up over the Canada goose and how might border collies offer the best solution to this plague upon our neighborhoods? Layla, you were the one that suggested this story, so it's yours to talk about. <laughs> yes, well, the goose population is is booming because they're a protected species and, and because our, our parks and our open fields happen to be exactly what they're looking for. But they leave these gross turds all over the place that the city workers have to pick up and they cross the road at the most leisurely annoying pace despite the drivers and they they just honk at people in parks and they're annoying. Um, but it's it's illegal to kill the geese without special permission from the federal government, but it's it's not illegal to harass them. So these businesses have proliferated around doing that with a variety of methods. They use pyrotechnics and barriers and a grid on the pond and laser pointers at night and all kinds of, of crazy repellents. Um, and uh, I, I had even read about using fake decoys of geese, the geese as natural predators like coyotes and things like that. But perhaps the most effective of these methods seem, is using border collies to chase the geese on a daily basis until they get the message that they're not wanted and they move on to either more remote parks or places where the humans don't mind or, or aren't willing to pay money for goose harassment because this service can be between $1,500 to $10,000 depending on how big the property is. Um, currently, geese are in their flightless stage after they hatch their goslings. So chasing the birds at this point is, isn't, it's not going to really shoo them out of the parks, but the colleagues want to kind of impress upon them how unwanted they are so that they, you know, move along at their earliest opportunity. <laughs> we, we asked readers what they thought about the Canada goose, and I was surprised how many people bitterly hate them. I mean, they just... <laughs> The, the venom and what they had to say uh, was, it was just, I don't see that often. And yet there are also those saying, hey, look, we kind of invaded their territory, which isn't really true because they're not, they're not native, right? This was something that was brought in. Yeah. I mean, I, they, 
but but I think the fact that they have been, um, I mean, we enjoy our park spaces and make them as as uh, lush and and beautiful as possible, and that's why they have also. Uh, taken well, to them. And they have no <laughs> so predators. It's kind of our problem. <laughs> they have no predators anymore, right? So they keep proliferating. At one point, they were almost extinct like 100 years ago. And now there are 7 million in North America. So yes, they are not endangered at all. And isn't it time to take them off the protected well, yeah, because well, you list. you are allowed to kill them if you get special permission. But um, I'm with you, Layla. Man, I've, I've read about some really inhumane ways to kill geese, though. Like they do things to their eggs that trick them into continuing to sit on them, and then the eggs never hatch because they've been like you know destroyed from the inside. It's terrible, but you know, border colleague sex that's a humane way to do it. Well, it just pushes them to somebody else's yard, though. I mean, it doesn't really <laughs> solve the problem. It just moves it. And the guy even joked about that. He, My he next, where that. did they yeah, go? My next that. customer. I mean, it was, it was uh, interesting. There is a hunting season, the story said, but one of the readers sent a note saying they're terrible for eating, that, that it's just not something that you want to <laughs> chow down I on. loved some of the comments. Uh, I was cracking up. One person said that they had an ongoing battle with geese at their church for years and the geese are winning. They said, we even put fake plastic swans in the pond to try to deter the geese. The only thing that happened was that one of the the swans washed ashore and while it was lying in the grass, we got a visit from a hysterical PETA member who accused <laughs> us of killing it. <laughs> <laughs> I love these. Yeah, they were good. We put a collection of them together, put them in. Good stuff by Pete. Great photos showing the dogs harassing the geese, some in the ponds in places where they like to congregate. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Much of the talk about issue one on the August 8th ballot is about Secretary of State Frank LaRosa's push to destroy Ohio's treasured tradition of majority rule. But a second part of the proposal would make it nearly impossible for people to change their constitution. Would it make Ohio one of the worst in the nation for these requirements, Laura? Andrew Tobias's story was just a terrific piece, putting this into perspective. Yes. And the perspective is, yes, we would be one of the work worst. There are only three states that actually break down constitutional amendment signatures by county. None of them require every county to be on board. So we, we talk at length about issue one regularly, and we've talked about the majority minority rule and the vote. But the new signature requirements is one of the biggest roadblocks in the country for citizens who want to change this constitution. So you'd have to, under the, the law that they want to pass August 8th, get 5% in, of voters who voted in the last gubernatorial election in every single county. Currently, it's 44 counties. So they'd make you get it from every single one. And it, the thing is, it wouldn't necessarily make it impossible, although very, very difficult, but it would really just make sure that the people who w are able to do this are people who have really deep pockets and are probably not grassroots organizations. So you need a ton of money. And even Frank LaRose said that at one point that he, he wasn't originally in favor of changing the signature requirement because that's actually the opposite of what they're saying when they say all these issue one you know, campaign, they're saying we don't want outside interests. But this is like guaranteeing the only way anything will ever get on the ballot if it is a very deep pocketed 
outside interests. Yeah, I loved the the fact Andrew quoted him yes. saying exactly that. It just shows the guy is hypocrite number one. He's out there pushing this. He really he's supposed to protect democracy. He's trying to attack it. The whole thing is upside down. But this really put it into perspective about how hard it is. People keep asking, how do other states do it? Andrew lays it out. This would make it nearly impossible. One person he talked to said, well, it won't be impossible. It'll just be more expensive. But others he talked to said, yeah, it's not going to happen. This is to take away the power from the people to change their constitution and mass all power in this state in the gerrymandered legislature. And it's a bad move. Right, because they can still put constitutional amendments on the ballot with just a vote. They don't have to go get signatures. So a lot of states don't have any geographic requirements at all to get your, your issue on the ballot. That includes Arizona, California, Oklahoma, Oregon, and South Dakota. Some of them set them by congressional or legislative district. And only two states, Colorado and Nevada, required they come from East District. But if you think about it, they have a lot fewer districts. Nevada has only four congressional districts. So you don't have to touch every corner of the state. We have 88 counties in Ohio, and some of them have very few people in them. And you're going to make sure that you get 5% from each one of them. And that is, if not the worst in the country, like I don't think anyone could say that definitively, but nobody could name anything that's worse or harder. Well, let's remind people, there's nothing broken here. We've had the same system in place for more than a century, and it's worked quite well. There is nothing broken. This is a sinister way to stop people the majority of Ohioans for setting the rules on abortion because they want to keep the power in the legislature, which is filled with monkey brains because of gerrymandering. Yeah. And they, they originally agreed on this 44 county requirement as a compromise between pro and anti-initiative factions a century ago. So they they addressed it. They said, we want to make sure rural counties have support, that it's not just the cities the big cities that want something and overriding everyone else. So that's why the 44 is in there. That seems like a pretty good safeguard. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We had some hard news break Friday about issue one. It was not unexpected. But Courtney, what was the tortured logic the majority Republicans on the Ohio Supreme Court used to justify the legislature breaking the law to set a special election for issue one? Yeah, the court's Republican majority on Friday came down in this 4-3 ruling in an unsigned opinion that basically held that even though state legislators moved to <clears throat> ban special elections in August a few months ago, they, they can they can make this one move forward. Apparently, the, the state Supreme Court said basically it's up to the Ohio General Assembly to determine when an election should be held on proposed amendments. And they cited a piece of the Constitution that says um, that proposed amendments can go to the voters, quote, as the General Assembly may prescribe. So what this opinion does is just say that the General Assembly can move forward with this, even though it passed that law saying that these kinds of elections shouldn't occur anymore. And and we we heard some dissent. I mean, immediately, De- Democratic Justice Michael Donnelly wrote that the Constitution doesn't give the Republican-dominated legislature this power the way his colleagues decided. And basically, Jennifer Bruner said, what the General Assembly has done here is to ignore the law. Yeah. I, the, if you read the dissent, it's grounded in logic and legal precedent. What we have now is a Supreme Court run by Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy that puts party over 
the law, puts party over the people. So there was never any doubt they were going to come up with some tortured logic to say this is right. But if you read that opinion and you read the dissent, one of them is grounded in the law and precedent, and it's the dissents. Again, it's sad, but, but it's more evidence about why issue one needs to be voted down. The Supreme Court's been completely co-opted by justices that don't care about the law. They just care about their party. And the legislature is filled with cuckoo birds because gerrymandering, who are doing crazy things that do not represent the state, the only power the people have to fight back is by changing the Constitution. That's why it's so important that it not be changed. Yeah, so the, the, the folks who are pro-state issue one, you know, we know Senate President Matt Hoffman's a big supporter here. And he kind of pointed out the logic that this decision rested rested on, basically that the court made a similar ruling to this in 1967, saying state lawmakers could set a special election date, even though there was no state law specifically allowing them to hold that election back then. It was in May was the question. But 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 it's hard to ignore the scorching comments from the dissent. I'd like to read a line from Justice Donnelly. He said, rather than changing the law, the General Assembly and Secretary of State Frank LaRose want to be told that the Ohio Constitution allows the General Assembly to break its own laws. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The continuing story of children spending nights at a Cuyahoga County office building never designed for that is that it is affecting the workers in that building. And some of it is involving violence. Layla, what's the story here? Caitlin Durbin did a terrific job laying this out over the weekend. She did. She got her hands on 110 protective services reports from January through June of 2022. And these detail incidents in, in that office building, most of them relating to kids in custody, destroying county property or assaulting staff. The details in these reports paint this picture of, of a county office that is really poorly equipped to house kids in custody and and a, a work environment that has just become so dangerous for the people who work there. And even though the county now has an $11 million contract to create new bed space to keep kids out of that Jane Edna Hunter building, kids are still there. And the county has, has pretty much acknowledged that some kids will always be there. And, and workers say the conditions haven't improved at all since this has become a really big issue this past year. In fact, the violent outbursts are sometimes so bad that staff have said in their reports that they're worried someone is going to die in that building. Marquez Brown, who's the Cleveland Regional Director of AFSCME, Ohio Council 8, he says that the 500 social workers he represents tell him the assaults are becoming more common. Every time they report to work in the building, they're fearful. Caitlin details a lot of the examples in her story. They include kids ransacking the kitchen, using a fire extinguisher to bust in the food cabinets. They roam around with scissors and kitchen knives and threaten to stab DCFS workers. They're throwing things, striking workers in the head with blunt objects. I mean, one one child snuck a stun gun past the metal detector and held it up to a staff member and before it was wrestled away. And the workers say it feels like no one's doing anything to help them. The childcare room is staffed by, by two full-time employees who watch over the kids in the building between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. But depending on the number of kids in the building, their behaviors or staff call-offs, they're 
they, they need to supplement that coverage. So they draw upon staff from other departments within the agency and they ask employees to volunteer to work in the child care room after hours or over the weekend for overtime. And the union wants the county to hire behavioral health experts to work with the kids during the day or and for every child care worker to receive special training on de-escalating crisis situations. And the county says they're working on it. You know, I want to step back a little bit on this story because we talked about it a couple of weeks ago when Chris Ronane, not realizing we were in attendance, told the DCFS board right. that our reporting on this, he never identified us, but we're the only ones doing the reporting, was exaggerated and overblown. And he tried to position himself as a defender of the workers, almost as if our reporting had attacked the workers, which it right. never did. Right. It actually championed the workers. Well, here's here's here are the workers. Here are the people he says he's defending and he's championing who are begging for help that is not coming. So shameful, shameful, shameful of Chris Ronane to act like this was overblown, specifically because he took our reporting and ran for office on it. It became part of his campaign. Right. Anybody reading this story? Just contrast that with Chris Ronane saying this was overblown and exaggerated. That's why I say it's shameful. Second, let's step back. He ca he campaigned on this, saying it has to be fixed. He's not in office, what, a month when he, he puts the word out that, you know what, we're always going to have to have kids in this building. And everybody accepts that. And I just want to stop for a second because that is absurd. This is an office building. Why is it acceptable to say we'll always have kids there? If you have to have a drop-off place for kids, why isn't it residential? It's, I just, I, I want to, we go back. He was new and nobody really pushed back on that. Where's the council saying, what are you talking about, man? You cannot have kids sleeping overnight in an office building. Right, right. And, and truly, I mean, Caitlin recently obtained uh, some video that was shot within that space of a, of a violent situation. And not only is the, is the violence itself very jarring and upsetting and, and it just blows your mind. But th the space itself, it looks like it's a break room in some, I mean, it is right. not even like, and it's been, that's been the case for so long. You would think that by this point, they would have at least created an accommodation that felt like it was homey enough for kids who felt, who, who were completely displaced. And, and, you know, I, it's just, it really does feel like if you went into our break room in our newsroom, and threw some air mattresses down. <laughs> look, that is what it's like. Look, so it, if this were acceptable, other counties would do it. This would be the way counties handle it. This is an abject failure of the county to deliver a vital service it's charged with delivering. It, it, you know, they're in the background whispering about stadium money and the Haslam's want money for a football stadium. This is the most basic service. Get the kids out of the office building. The other thing is, Caitlin Sturry said, the workers are the ones that answer the 696 kids hotline. So people calling in reports of child abuse are calling these workers who are now under threat of violence and distracted by kids sleeping in a building not designed for it. We got to like wrench back in time. And when he comes out and says, you know, we're just going to have to have kids sleep there. No, no, no. That's not acceptable. Fix it. Amen. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great story. I mean, it's an eye-opening story in so many ways. And all I could think of, and he said that this story was exaggerated and sensationalized to sell newspapers. And, Jack and Guest thing, statement of the year. 
the thing is this the social workers have an incredibly hard job as it is like to put this on top of them and they don't ever have enough social workers why on earth would you ever want to take this job right and he's pretending he's the defender of these folks that's the that's the, the hypocrisy here you want to defend them fix this this should be priority number one right now for the county you're listening to today in ohio this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The economy, the economy seems to be roaring. Has Ohio gotten back all the jobs it lost to the pandemic? Laura. Yes, and it has hit record low unemployment. So Ohio added 6,600 jobs in May. That brings the total employment to 5.6 million, according to data from the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. An employment rate was 3.6%. That's down from 3.7% in April. And we are now 3,500 jobs ahead of where we were in February 2020 when the world shut down. And that's when the unemployment rate was 4.6%. So all this talk about a possible recession. And, you know, we just wrapped up our top workplaces special section and, and project that we'll publish next week. And there is this kind of idea of a recession out there. And, and how do you keep up morale when you're looking down that? But like, I don't, and I'm not an economist, but I don't really understand the recession fears when we are having such a booming economy. Yeah, I think a lot of economists are starting to pull back from that. Some are now wondering whether the bull market is is happening. We're not back to the highs we were before it all started to come down, but it is charging forward. The fact that unemployment is that low is is great news for Ohio. It's not good news for employers who are still trying to find workers. The thing is, we still have 50, uh, 1100, sorry, 110,000 fewer people in the labor force compared to pre-pandemic levels. So that, you know, if you're not in the labor force, you don't count in unemployment. So we still have a sizable group of people that just checked out and said, nope, I'm not working. And that makes it that much harder to hire the people that you want. I mean, we talked about it before, but our, <laughs> you, you can't go past a city hall without seeing a lifeguards wanted sign and they're paying $14 an hour. So yeah, it's still hard to hire for some jobs. All right, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Courtney, why were residents of East Palestine screaming in Columbus last week about demands for more relief? Yes, last Wednesday, about 50 or so residents of East Palestine went down to the state house. And as the house was, was in the middle of a floor session, they began screaming from the gallery, demanding that Governor DeWine declare a state of emergency for their situation in East Palestine post-train derailment. And, and the residents were escorted out by security, and then there was a gathering outside the state house. So our reporters were talking to them about their concerns. And residents say they're upset about how this has all played out, and they want more help or at least clarity, uh, you know, they don't see that on the way right now. And they want DeWine to, to declare a state of emergency here. 
basically, let's look at the case of Ashley McCollum, one of the folks that we talked to. She told us that she's still living in a hotel when she goes back to her house, which is not far from the train derailment site. It reeks of chemicals. She gets rashes. When she made an early trip home back closer to the derailment, she got she vomited. And now when she goes back home, she's there for a short while and she gets headaches. The Norfolk Southern is paying for hotel, but McCollum doesn't know how long that's going to last. And she's worried about what she's going to do with her kid. She's nervous to take her son back home when she's getting physically ill from just being there for a short amount of time. And basically, folks are upset that they're kind of hanging in the balance. They're not sure that help is on the way and they want a more robust response from the state through an emergency declaration. You'd think with what she's saying that they'd be in her house checking to see what could be causing all of those problems. And if there's that kind of massive contamination that should be offered something. The uh, Norfolk Southern is out this morning with an announcement that it's 20, more than 25 million in improvements planned for that village have been approved by the town council. And so it's going to move forward. You know, I, I, I was very interested by the response from the state house during this demonstration last week. Speaker Jason Stevens called the whole thing unfortunate And he said, when East Palestine residents do things like this, screaming from the gallery, quote, they actually lose the influence. Um, So he wants them to to not make as much of a ruckus and kind of have meetings and do it that way, which is wild, right? And I think it's worth here sharing what Dan Dan Tierney, DeWine spokesman, said. He understands that these folks want the state to apply to FEMA for a disaster declaration, but the governor's office said FEMA doesn't usually grant that declaration for things like this and that the state's been in contact with FEMA. And FEMA tells Ohio that if we were to apply for this, they they think that we'll get rejected. That attitude of pipe down and take what we're giving you is so typical of this legislature that just wants to run everything. It's again, an issue one question. Shut up. Do what we tell you. Be grateful for what we're giving you. We don't want to see you here again. Great message to the voters. I hope the people of East Palestine all vote against issue one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why does Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb say a just-completed survey of every parcel of real estate in the city is important for making life better for the residents? Layla. This was a huge housing survey that was conducted by a team of building and housing inspectors and and staff from the Western Reserve Land Conservancy and and local CDCs. They looked at more than 167,000 parcels across Cleveland between October and April They walked about 1,400 miles to record the conditions of homes and commercial properties and vacant land. And the goal here was to create this roadmap for Justin Bibb as he he aims to revitalize the city and its housing stock. And he's a really data-driven guy. We know this. His his line in the story is, you can't manage what you can't measure. And I, I agree with that. And the data collected here is really expansive. It covers 53 categories. Those categories are things like housing conditions on, on individual properties, the number of vacant lots, structures that are more likely to have lead hazards. It measures how many trees are in neighborhoods and, and all the amenities like schools and parks and, and the condition of fire hydrants and sidewalks and stuff. And among the, the highlights, 
Two-thirds of Cleveland parcels, which is over 100,000 of them, contain occupied structures. About 94% of those are in fair to excellent condition. Good news, but that's down from 2015 when 98% of occupied properties were considered to be in decent shape. Vacant structures account for 5.7% of parcels. That's down from 8% from 8% in 2015. And the officials say that all the demolition efforts are probably to account, you know, they account for much of that decrease. 52% of vacant structures are in poor shape, rated as deteriorated or hazardous. Also, vacant lots account for nearly 21% of parcels. That's up from 18% in 2015. Also, I assume connected with all the the, uh, demo efforts. And out-of-state owners, who Bib hates, (laughs) they own 7.6% of parcels. So, you know, there, there are just plenty more findings. Courtney, you, you really nailed this one. But basically, all this data will will help guide the city's deployment of ARPA dollars to breathe life into the neighborhoods, uh, to conduct strategic demolition, and to really get ahead of problems with thoughtful enforcement of housing code. Yeah, I'd love to get a hold of this thing because I oh, think yeah. we could mine it. But there's some question about whether it's public record because of who paid for it. Yeah, Courtney, do you want to talk about that? We've, we've got to figure out if this is accessible to the public and accessible to us. Basically, what was rolled out at the press conference is that anyone with .gov or .edu or .org email addresses can access it currently. But it sounds like there may be some willingness or openness to sharing the data set with the public as well. We'll, we'll run that down. I, you know, I get why they might be hesitant to put this out into the public domain because of those out-of-state landlords that would love to get their hands on a complete encyclopedia of Cleveland properties so that they come in and raid it and leave the city high and dry. But I, I don't know how, well, I, I, I'd love to see the contract because the city did not pay for the data, right? They just assisted in, in consulting with the people that collected the data but I'd love to get it because I think we could do a lot of very interesting stories about Cleveland's housing stock. So we'll have to see. We'll have to keep up the fight. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much is the family of Jalen Walker, who was killed by Akron police, seeking in a lawsuit filed over his death? Laura. $45 million. That's $1 million for every bullet that hit 25-year-old Jalen Walker. And this is from Jada's, uh, sorry, Walker's sister, Jada. 94 shots were fired in this case, which happened right around this time last year. So the case is filed in federal court in Akron. It's been assigned to U.S. District Judge John Adams. Does not name the eight, high, the eight officers who shot Walker on June 27th, 2022, because of the high pri- profile nature. But it's not just the officers that they're taking aim at. The police supervisors, Police Chief Steve Milet and Mayor Dan Horgan, they said there's been all sorts of violent Akron police arrests in the past and a real culture of racism going back decades. Yeah. Whenever somebody names an amount like this in a lawsuit, it doesn't really mean much. The the amounts usually get settled and it's based on precedents and other things. I would not expect this one to go to trial. I would think that Akron would probably settle this like most cities do, right? 
Mm-hmm. That's my guess. I mean, we don't usually see these go to trial. Uh, they're accusing Akron of of major errors in this chase that led to Jalen Walker's death, saying, you know, they shouldn't have tried to stop him for a minor traffic violation in the first place. And then they boxed in his car at the end. So he had nowhere to go. So, I mean, there's specifics. And then they get into this history here. I, I mean, it goes way back to a 1998 internal affairs investigation about a racist newsletter, which I mean, they're connecting the dots there. That would be interesting to see if that holds up. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That does it for the Tuesday edition. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, everybody who listens. We'll be back tomorrow with the same. Oh, no, Layla won't be here tomorrow. So it'll be Courtney and Lisa. 